What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I'm very excited to have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Robert Sawyer, who's the professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at the Western Michigan University Homer Stryker School of Medicine and is the lead author, amongst other things, of the Stop It trial, which many listeners will know about and which we're going to talk about today. Dr. Sawyer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate the chance to be here. So let's start um, just by telling our listeners a little about you, because uh, I'm sure they'll be interested. What's your career path been, and, and how do you focus your time now? Uh, well, I've always, even from early on in medical school, been interested in infectious diseases and surgery, which is, I guess, how we ended up being here together. And started out uh, going through medical school and general surgery training, uh, and at that time was trying to figure out how to include infectious diseases in an academic practice of general surgery and decided, believe it or not, to become a transplant surgeon and did that, uh, did a fellowship in that and did that for about 10 years. Uh, And at that time, the whole field of acute care surgery was really beginning to be developed. So, uh, you know, the combination of critical care and trauma and acute care surgery. And I realized that that was probably maybe even a little bit better fit for me. So I transitioned over into that. But throughout this whole, you know, decades-long work, I've been in, – infectious disease and critically ill surgical patients has always been um, what I've loved and uh, was at the University of Virginia for many wonderful years and then had the opportunity to go join a new school of medicine uh, at Western Michigan and uh, signed on as chair and for the last year and a half have been working on that and having a great time. That's great. And so do you split your time between, you know, obviously running the department and then uh, still being involved, I imagine, in some research? Oh, yes. Uh, And that's actually part of my charge is to build the research there, but uh, still have a a decent clinical load, which I think is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Uh, One, so you know what to do research on, and two, so I can teach and uh, work with the residents and so forth. So uh, administrative responsibilities, but still clinical and research uh, efforts going on. That's great. All right. Well, again, thanks for coming. So let's talk about the Stop It trial. So this was a trial of a short course of antimicrobial therapy for intra-abdominal infections. 
Um, and in summary, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you looked at three to five days of antibiotics for complicated intra-abdominal infections compared to receiving antibiotics only until or up until two days after the resolution of abnormalities related to the SERS criteria. So is that an accurate summary? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And uh, part of the interesting things about this study is you have one arm which has, and it was actually fixed at four days, but it ended up being four plus or minus one days because we didn't know what to do with half a day. Um, But then the other arm was based on physiologic criteria, which was one of the questions going into the study is whether you should just do, say, four days versus 10 days or something like that. We, when we were starting, we just looked around and said, you know, what are people doing? And what people do and still do quite frequently, and maybe the right thing, I don't know, give antibiotics until the fever goes away and the leukocytosis gets better and then stop a day or so after that. So that's how we ended up with those two arms. Great. And yeah, it's such an interesting question. There's no no doubt in my mind that the overwhelming um, still, although I think I do think it's starting to change, thanks in part to your work, but I think that overwhelmingly the the usual care is to say, well, if the patient's getting better, then the antibiotics are working, and therefore we should keep them going until the patient is all the way better. So uh, in this age now of antibiotic stewardship and really trying to think carefully about these things, this is a really important question. What made you decide to look at the duration of antibiotic therapy? Was it this question of, you know, gee, we're using them quite quite extensively and for long periods of time, or what kind of got you to that question? There, are, Well, there are a couple things. One was um, it... it would, it seems strange to me just from experience that we'd have patients who came in, and, and now we're talking about relatively simpler, you know, infections. So somebody came in with a perforated appendicitis, and they had an abscess, and you took their appendix out, and we were sending them home two or three days later on two weeks of antibiotics. It just didn't seem to make sense to me. But um, one of the important things was there was a um, really important trial done in France uh, where they compared 8 versus 15 days of antimicrobials for ventilator-associated pneumonia, which I think was truly a bold um, uh, thing. And uh, we're successfully able to show that with some subtleties, I'll say that, uh, the outcomes were fairly similar between 8 and 15. So it got us thinking about, okay, uh, this traditionally week's worth of antibiotics for serious infections may be not so important. And then if you compare pneumonia, which is a disease that there's really not clearly effective source control, uh, that the antibiotics are pretty much everything you're doing for the patient with some resuscitation, compare that to surgical procedures where we're draining an abscess or we're taking out an infected piece of colon or something like that uh, and leaving relatively fewer bacteria behind. That's That kind of gave us an, the impetus to think that we could really shorten the duration. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And then how did you decide on four days? So clearly the the other arm was easier because that was kind of what was being done, but why four instead of three or five? Uh, Yeah, great question. Uh, There are a lot of uh, funny and true answers to that. One is uh, the recommendations, the most uh, aggressive, I'm going to put that, recommendations that have been put out that time based solely on opinion was for good source control, three to five days of antibiotics, uh, and therefore four was uh, right in the middle. We also, when we were doing our um, our sample size calculations, wanted to make sure we had a reasonably powered study that would give some 
clinically relevant difference. And therefore, had we just said, like, say, seven days versus something else, we'd afraid we'd end up with a study that said seven days versus nine days or something like right. that. And therefore, we wanted to go on the little shorter end. And then four was a fairly memorable number, uh, and, and it just kind of stuck. Okay, great. Um, so this was a really big trial. It included 23 sites in the United States and Canada. So I think listeners are going to be curious, uh, you know, how did, how did you manage such a wide-ranging trial? What were some of the challenges of, of trying to keep that all going and organized? Well, the key, the key to this whole process throughout the um, planning and execution and ultimately publication of the studies was working through the Surgical Infection Society, uh, which is a relatively small society. We have 450, 500 active members, but they're all really dedicated uh, to surgical infections and so forth. And you, the, the work through that society to find people who are interested uh, and uh, enthusiastic about trying to do that, to, to do a study and answer a question from a scientific standpoint, that was uh, part of the key as well. A lot of it was learning, to be perfectly honest, on our own. We had a lot of help from the people at the NIH who were funding the trial as well. They gave us a lot of useful um, input. Uh, ultimately, we uh, had a proprietary firm help us with the online data collection and so forth, and they were actually really good about everything. So a lot of it was a learning experience, I'll say that, but uh, fortunately it all worked out. Yeah, fantastic. All right. So you looked at patients with complicated intra-abdominal infections, as we said up front. How did you define complicated and how did you arrive at that definition? Yeah, complicated, uh, generally the FDA will define complicated, and, and we agreed with this, as an intra-abdominal infection that requires some intervention for treatment, uh, resection, drainage, et cetera, et cetera. That is different than, say, uh, relatively bland diverticulitis where the intervention is antibiotics alone. So you had to have a source control procedure and almost like a circular definition, complicated means you required a source control procedure and therefore you had to have a source control procedure to get into the study. Uh, and that's basically the, the real definition. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So then let's dive into that a little bit. How did you decide whether the patients had adequate source control? Because that to me is, is you know, the, we're always having that debate in our surgical ICUs, right? Is the patient has had a procedure, whether a drain or a surgical procedure, but the question is, did they get it all? Is it, is it adequately drained? Very key, very key question, and you're very perceptive to ask that, and particularly since there's still no truly clear definition of source control. But the short answer to the question is the rules of the study were the person who was at the site where the potential patient was to be enrolled which was generally the surgeon who operated on the patient or somebody who was involved, they had to believe that there was adequate source control. And then they would contact me as the overall study PI. We would discuss the case, and I would also have to agree that there was adequate source control uh, based on the information that I was given. And that was sometimes text, sometimes email, sometimes telephone calls. And then for patients in my own center, um, we had one of the other investigators in Cleveland who I would talk to and make sure that uh, he also thought there was adequate source control. So you had to have two surgeons agree there was source control. Is that a perfect definition? No, but it was practical. And I think uh, 
probably was accurate 95% of the time. Okay. So let's say you had a patient with an abscess and they went to IR and had a drain placed. Uh, and the IR doc or the surgeon who's the primary uh, attending says, I think it's adequate. And then they want, they call you. Or what are you looking at? Are you looking at scans to see the size of the fluid collection? Or are you saying the, the drain looks like it's in the right place? Generally, generally would not be looking at the imaging. Uh, a lot of times, as you know, if you put a drain in and, and what is it, three quarters pi r cube? What is it? The the volume of a right. the volume of a sphere? You, you'd sit there and say, okay, if I if I think the abscess is this big, and therefore I think it must have a couple hundred milliliters, and if they only get five out, then we're worried, and then might want some reimaging. But if it seemed relatively close, then we were happy with that. Okay. Um, Great. So your findings were no difference in the composite primary outcome of surgical site infection, recurrent intra-abdominal infection, and death. So how did you choose that composite outcome? Um, When when we were putting this all together, we were just thinking, well, what what do we consider a bad outcome? And those were the three things uh, that immediately came up. And, And composite outcomes, there's always some question about those because... Um, you can construct a composite outcome, and if one of the elements of your composite outcome just overwhelms everything else, then it's really not that useful. In our situation, we thought that recurrent intra-abdominal infections and surgical site infections would be relatively common, which was the case. The death would be rare, but we felt obligated to put death in as part of sure. the, the composite outcome because it obviously is such an important uh, outcome. So that's how we derived that. Great. All right. And then did you look at each one independently and find what you thought, which was the uh, the first two were common in death, less so? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we, of course, analyzed differences between the allocation groups uh, and found no difference for either of those. The death, fortunately, was actually uncommon, uh, meaning, I, if I recall correctly, either three or four out of the whole study, which was actually kind of uh, amazing given the patient population. The overall composite outcome, when we said common, was actually true. And one of the things that kind of when I explain the outcomes to people is you can look at that and the, the outcome occurs about 23 to 24% in each group. We're still not doing really well <laughs> if you think about it, right? You know, right. A, a quarter of your patients end up with a serious complication. Uh, but the fact is the duration of antibiotic therapy didn't seem to alter that any, uh, and, and therefore uh, maybe we just need some other interventions as well. But, uh, but we, yeah, we did ex- find exactly what we thought. So surgical site infections, recurrent intervallal infections, both uh, in the 10% range, 8 to 10% range each, uh, so very common. Okay, interesting. And, you know, do you have any thoughts on what the answer is? I mean, what, what would we do if, if a quarter of patients are still having this happen despite – what we think is adequate source control and adequate antibiotics, is there, you know, what's the next step? What, what should we be doing? I mean, I, I guess we don't know the answer, but what do you think? Well, it, it is interesting. I will say that one of the comments on the trial when it came out uh, was, well, you have not proven, and this is true, you have not proven that if you gave two weeks of antibiotics, you could actually make that number go down, uh, which is, a, I, I suppose, a possibility. The Putting that aside, though, and, and thinking about how we can make those things better, I don't – I'm not – I, I don't have the answer. I'll tell you that right now. 
Uh, one of the things always we think about is since source control, the procedure itself is important. Is there some way we need to alter the procedure? Do we need to be more aggressive mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, resecting the colon or whatever else or, you know, how many drains we put in or the size of drains and so forth? That could be um, possible. Uh, I don't mean to be a nihilist, but it's – Hard for me to imagine we can get too much less than that, but obviously we should be trying to do right. that. Right. Interesting. Okay. So it didn't matter whether the infection was uh, treated or whether the drainage procedure was surgical drainage or percutaneous drainage. Is mm-hmm. that right? Correct. Okay. And so, you know, it's interesting. I think from the non-surgeon side, we as anesthesiology attendings in the in the ICU often feel like, oh, wouldn't it be, you know, these drains, they never seem to get it all, or it wouldn't be better to just go in there, but it sounds like it doesn't really matter. Surgical drainage was had no advantage over percutaneous drainage. Correct. Uh, though the the patient populations are probably, well, they're certainly different in subtle and not-so-subtle ways. If you think about it, you get an operation when you think the organ is so damaged, generally that it needs, it needs to be resected, sometimes repaired, uh, whereas percutaneous drainage, that patient population is going to be somebody who you think, uh, first of all, is probably physiologically relatively well. You think they have a condition which at least for the intermediate term will get better just with drainage. So the classic is somebody with a perforated appendicitis. They have an abscess. If you operate, it's a mess. Um, if you put a percutaneous drain in and temporize them and either bring them back and take their appendix out a couple of months later or maybe not uh, – that they're going to be okay. So there's probably a little selection bias between percutaneous versus not percutaneous, um, but nonetheless, the the outcomes, at least overall, were similar. Great. So the study was discontinued early, um, and do you think that matters in terms of the outcomes and how we interpret them? Uh, oof, left brain, right brain. Uh, the, the I believe enough in statistics that it still makes me feel a little bit unhappy that we didn't get to our um, projected numbers. But on the other hand, on a practical standpoint, do I really think had we enrolled 1,100 patients versus 526 would it have made a big difference? No, probably not. Uh, if anything, we would have found probably maybe a subtle clinically insignificant difference. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, it, it, you always feel a little bit hollow when you don't reach your projected number that you need. Sure. Okay. So there, another uh, question is very few immunocompromised patients were included. And so do you think we should exclude them when we think about kind of which patients this applies to? Um, Hard to convince people to do this, but I do and still did uh, and did at the the time of the procedure. The the relationship between the immune system and abdominal infections and source control is, I don't know if anyone's ever really going to figure it out. There were a small number of patients in her transplant patients, probably our biggest group of immunocompromised patients. There's still a handful of patients who are on steroids for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And in my naive uh, view of the pathophysiology of intra-abdominal infections, uh, if you get technical adequate source control uh, and remove most of the tissue during that procedure, the infected material, to me, it doesn't make that much difference whether someone's immunocompromised or not, unless they're terrible. Would I do this in somebody, a bone marrow transplantation with an ANC of you know 120? No, I wouldn't. I'm not that crazy. <laughs> but the run-of-the-mill person who had a kidney transplant and has a perinephric abscess or someone who has a 
contained bio leak that's controlled after a liver transplant. I think the theories are all probably still valid and would do short courses. Okay. Was protocol non-adherence a problem? It, uh, it occurred, no question about that. It did not occur at a tremendously high rate. It was, I think in the, I'm trying to recall now, probably in the 20% range for the four-day group uh, and then somewhat less for the uh, other group, which is probably be expected because I think most of the surgeons were more comfortable with the longer courses. Right. The, uh, and, and incidentally, there was actually protocol violations that went both way. Every once in a while, people would only get two days of antibiotics in the four-day group. I don't quite understand how that all worked mm. out, but sometimes that would happen. Um, so it did occur. That was actually one of the things we were very interested in was to see if people would actually really go ahead with four days of right. antibiotics uh, in these patients. And, and the vast majority of the time it did. It was interesting. The We, of course, did multiple subgroup analyses. And if you looked at the group that adhered to protocol and, and, and just compared those, the results were still fairly similar. And, in fact, if you looked at the people... Um, who got what we consider overly long, according to the protocol, duration of antimicrobial therapy, they actually seem to do worse than the people who mm. stayed according to the protocol. But that's that's just all observational. Interesting. You know, one thing that occurs to me, was there? did you see any signal or did you look at whether the patients who got longer courses of antibiotics um, had any increased uh, incidence of uh, C. diff infection? Yeah, we, d- we looked at that very low rate of C. diff. I think there was probably only one or two in each group, okay. uh, which was surprising. And the, uh, the related, uh, one of the related things that we um, wanted to see, as you can imagine, is that briefer um, courses of antibiotics would be associated with fewer subsequent infections caused by resistant organisms. Right. And we did not see that. Mm. Uh, we didn't even see any hint, subtle signals and so forth that that was, was true. And uh, oddly, oddly enough, actually, uh, at the upcoming Surgical Infection Society, we're, one of the residents I work with now is going to present a um, paper. We went back and included the Stop It study, but we looked at a total of 13 other randomized studies of duration of antimicrobial therapy um, most of the, you know, fairly large papers, which included over, f- I think, 5,200, 5,300 patients. Uh, and whether you put them together at the individual studies, there was no signal that we could see that the shorter group had fewer resistant subsequent infections. Um, and the, our thought is that you probably trash your microbiome within the first couple of days of getting antimicrobials. Right. Uh, and then the added, the increased resistance you get with further antibiotics probably exists, but it's not as much as that first couple of days may be Interesting. doing things. Okay. Um, so what do we do with a patient who may or may not have source control? So I'm thinking of a patient with drains in place, but it's unclear whether they're adequately draining. So you must have had these patients who, you, when you reviewed the surgeons, thought that it was adequately controlled. It, it, like you said, maybe they only got five cc's out of what seemed like it should have a couple hundred cc's in it. Um, so if you have one of those patients uh, with an intra-abdominal source, should we do four days or should we do more? Yeah, the, the fantastic, uh, fantastic question. Not, and not only is it relevant to the study, but it's relevant to the patients you're taking care of today in the intensive care unit right. or on the floor. It, it, it's not that important. Um, the For the study, um, 
the answer is if you know we thought the resource control and we were happy enough we put them in the study, then the outcome was the outcome they were going to have for the patient. So in current clinical practice, it's interesting, and some of it has to do with what the patient looks like, and, and let's be honest, right? So if we have a patient who's four days into their antibiotic course, uh, and I'm, we're not really sure they have source control, we think they do, but maybe not, and they're sickest not in the ICU, we're going to continue the antibiotics, right? Because right, right. we're not sure. If, on the other hand, they're out on the floor and they're physiologically in good shape, I'm one of those people who will stop the antibiotics after four days and watch them closely and uh, either re-image them or restart antibiotics if they have a problem. Okay. So, so then the related question, let's say you have a patient who you are convinced you've got source control. Mm-hmm. And four days into the antibiotics, they still have an elevated <laughs> white count, they're febrile, um, you know, and, and yet... You're convinced you have social Are you going to stop the antibiotics? Because that, that is what the data would suggest from the trial, right? Uh, yeah, and probably the most frequently asked question I get, and that was before the study, during the study, after the studies, are you – the IRBs were very interested in that question. Are you really going to stop antibiotics right. after four days if someone still has a fever and leukocytosis? And the answer is yes, and that's – that was the rules of the study, but it's also what my current practice is. Uh, and the message that we always try to get across is um, – it's probably not an antimicrobial failure. It's probably uh, antimicrobial failure related specifically to the abdomen. It's probably something else. It should be a trigger at day four, day five to do more diagnostic things. And I, it's interesting. I don't think this study would have been possible before the era of accurate CT scans, right? Because we, you know, some intradural infection. You're worried. You re-image them, CT, ultrasound, or whatever, right. uh, send cultures from other places. Do they have a pneumonia? Do they have a bloodstream infection related to the catheter? Whatever. Um, we advocate a aggressive diagnostic intervention rather than keeping the antibiotics going. But no, I'll stop in four days and then start looking at other things if it persists. Okay, great. Do you think these results can be applied to any extra abdominal infections? Mm, great question. Um, we are actually trying to put together a study to look at complicated skin and skin structure infections, uh, and we're working on obtaining funding for that. So I think if you look in the the world of infections and the major infections that surgeons manage, which almost by definition are those that require source control, right, because you need an intervention, um, my sense is that ultimately we'll figure it's applicable for skin and skin structure infections, probably say, empyemas, intrathoracic infections, uh, it will not be applicable for osteomyelitis, endocarditis, and so forth and so on. And and therefore, one of the things we've always been careful about is trying not to over-apply the data and say that you can give four days to somebody with pneumonia. Maybe true, I don't know, but that's a completely different answer. And and to us, the source control question is so important. Right. Uh, that it's probably applicable for things where source control is your major intervention. For the other ones, not so sure. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. What about bacteremia? Uh, that would be a, that would change the picture, right? If you had positive blood cultures, you would then treat for longer. Yep, in the uh, true and not in the study, uh, exclusion criteria was the presence of infection that needed for more than four days of antibiotics. The most common one of those was a bloodstream infection. Mm-hmm. We did ultimately end up with some patients in the study who had a bloodstream infection because the cultures would become positive after they uh, were enrolled, and that explains some of the lack of adherence in the right. four-day arm. Uh, it is an interesting area that 
uh, you're probably aware of that there are people questioning the duration of antibiotic therapy in the setting of bloodstream infection and people proposing that going down to a week or even less. If you have an infection that requires source control as the primary site, right. that you don't need 7, 10, 14, 21 days of antibiotics and so forth and so on. And, but that's another literature, and it'll be curious to see how that all works out. Yeah, that will be very interesting because you, I, I guess the assumption is that if you have a an abscess in the abdomen that is uh, translocating to the blood, once the abscess is drained, it's no longer going to translocate right, to the blood. Right, right. So that, that's one way to look at it. I, myself, am not bold enough to say you have an intrabowel infection, we have treated it, you have a bloodstream infection with E. coli, we're still happy stopping it four days. Mm-hmm. I will still do seven to ten, depending upon physiologic response and so forth, okay. uh, for bloodstream infection. Okay, interesting. So it sounds like some interesting uh, follow-up plans, looking, as you said, at, at skin and structural infections, other things that can be drained. Anything else on the docket uh, to follow up the stop trial? Uh, great Question and uh, our our next effort was in skin and skin structure. That was our, I think that's going to be our big area that we're going to try to uh, go after. In terms of the intra-abdominal, uh infection work, there's a lot of obviously there are a lot of studies which would be really beneficial to do. The immunocompromised group is probably mm-hmm. on the top of the list. Pediatrics, uh, there is um, a fair amount of interest from pediatric surgeons I've talked to about trying to reproduce uh, those uh, trials. If I had the, the time, I would be very interested in doing that. Slightly different patient population, of course, because the etiology is different in pediatric than it is in uh, adult, but uh, theoretically should have similar results. Yeah, interesting stuff. Well, we'll definitely keep our eye out for it. So there may be listeners out there who are uh, thinking, you know, I'd love to get involved in, in these kind of big randomized trials uh, or at least learn my way around them. Um, what advice do you have for for young faculty or trainees who think they'd like to, you know, one day be able to run a trial like you have? Yeah, <laughs> persistence is really important. Um, the I I think you end up having to, if you were a fish, school with people who have similar interests, and and even the idea of how to put together a you know, randomized study and how to do power calculations and what a reasonable question is. I, I learned that mostly from experience and being around other people talking about it. And I will say it was um, one of the, I think one of the important and interesting insights that I learned from um, doing some advisory work for pharmaceutical companies because Otherwise, I would never have learned a lot of the complexities of doing these studies from not only just the study design but from regulatory standpoints and so forth and what you can do and what you can't do and what the FDA needs and and, and what that is. So that was actually a useful uh, outcome from some interaction with industry that I had, uh, which I don't think I would have gotten any other way. Interesting. Do you recommend to, again, young faculty who are interested um, getting an extra degree, an MPH, or even a PhD? Do you think that, I mean, that's, you know, I think getting more common, is that necessary, you think? Wow. Um, I think it's useful. I really do. And and I've had the fantastic pleasure of helping mentor a dozen or so people through master's in clinical sciences or master's, master's in public health or 
uh, actually one MBA, but that's a completely different story. Okay. Uh, uh, to do that, and from I do not have a master's degree or any extra training, uh, but what they learned was so useful to them that I would recommend it. That if you're real, if you're a young faculty, young resident interested in high quality clinical research, I would go and get. Uh, some amount of extra training in mm-hmm. terms of clinical research. I really do think it's helpful. Well, that's great advice. Anything else you think we should mention, either about the Stop It trial or life or anything else before we sign <laughs> off? Uh, yeah, Anna, yeah. The, the whole antimicrobial world is a very interesting world in where we are, and in, in antimicrobial stewardship, particularly in the intensive care unit, is such an incredibly important uh, topic. Uh, I don't think we're close to understanding everything we need to do to do it well. And if you practice an intensive care unit, uh, the number of times you're not quite sure what to do. The key thing is I think people have to be collaborative. The other thing is actually interesting. So you have the antimicrobial world. You practice in the ICU, right? So, right. Uh, You know this. And it took me a long time to understand really one of the key areas of research that is going on that needs to go on is diagnostics Mm. because my sense is that a large percentage of the unnecessary antibiotics we give to people we give to people in that time point when we're not sure absolutely right and sometimes we're never sure right you think about the pneumonia patients you take care of and it's like you know they're maybe that you do a quantitative bal and it's kind of like ten thousand, and then all this other stuff like that and we're not sure or the people we give, you know, 72 hours of antibiotics just because they look really sick and we're right. waiting for everything to happen. Um, I think those 72 hours are relevant. Some people think they're not relevant, you know, no big deal. But I actually do think it has uh, potential harm on the microbiome. And therefore, the diagnostics getting better and better and better, I think, is actually going to be what leads us to better improvement in stewardship than anything else, any other crazy studies of shortening antibiotic therapy. But I think diagnostics are really uh, in the next decade going to be where it's at. Yeah, that's going to be huge because you're exactly right. And we see this all the time as a patient who, you know, their white count goes up or they, you know, their presser requirement goes up a little bit and we don't know, we don't have a reason and we don't, there's no known infection, but we say, you know what, let's start them on broad spectrum antibiotics for 48 to 72 hours, draw blood cultures. And if they're negative, we'll stop. Yep. And so what do you think the, is it, uh, when, when we talk about diagnostics, are we going to, you think, have better, faster ways to figure out if there is an infection in the blood, or is it imaging, or are, is it tests like procalcitonin? Well, no, that's a great question, and, and there are a lot of different um, approaches, right? So there's pathogen-based diagnostics, and then there's host-based diagnostics. And so the pathogen-based diagnostics are the molecular technologies that are going to allow us to determine that there's bacteria somewhere that it ought not to be, or fungus, or whatever. The problem with that, of course, is there are probably are a couple of bacteria floating around our bloodstream at any time and so forth and so on. And we know there are bacteria down in your lungs if you're mechanically ventilated. Um, that has to be worked out. And then the host-based is what procalcitonin is all about, which is good. Uh, we use it, uh, maybe not as consistently as we ought to, but it's not the answer. Uh, and I guess we're still some. It's going to be some combination of host-based and uh, microbial-based diagnostics. It's going to allow us, within, I mean, reasonably, we're going to need one to three hours to know. Otherwise, we're going to start antibiotics, just like you right. said. Um, and I, and I, I was just last week. I was rounding some of the hardest discussions because there's not a good answer. Is rounding patient their white count's gone from 12 to 18. 
you know, their temperature is 38.1 and the resident looks at me and goes, why aren't you going to start antibiotics? And I go, I don't know. I think we can wait. Right, right, <laughs> you know? right. But there's no good answer. Right. There's really no good answer. And, and, and those are the patients we're about. You know, the, we work in the ICU, so it's a different thing. It's a different than somebody who comes into the ED de novo. Right. Uh, they have similar – I mean they have similar concerns, but, it, it, but there's some subtle differences between those. And, and if you work with immunocompromised populations like I know you do, um, it makes it even harder. So the diagnostics is just a, a huge – piece of this yeah well it'll be exciting to see the improvements in that over time yep. as you say in the next 10 years well again dr sorry thank you so much for coming on the show this was fantastic and i think our guests will really our uh, listeners will learn a ton great thank you very much all right that was really fantastic uh so dr sorry was here giving uh, surgical grand rounds this morning and that's how i got to be lucky enough to have him in my office um, I will say that after we stopped recording, uh, we chatted a little bit more. We talked about procalcitonin and uh, his opinion on that. And interestingly, uh, he mentioned that they were going to, if the trial had not been stopped early, they were going to start measuring procalcitonin in the group that stopped antibiotics early to see if there was any, if that was predictive at all, of patients who would then develop a recurrent infection if their procalcitonin level was elevated versus not. Unfortunately, they didn't get to do that, but we may see that in some future trials from Dr. Sawyer's group. So that uh, really was enjoyable. Uh, if you have comments, go to ACRAC.com, that's A-C-C-R-A-C.com, where you can leave a comment. Let us know uh, how you practice, what do you do for antibiotics uh, with your patients in the ICU, and what do you think about Dr. Sawyer's trial? If you are a fan of the show, please go to iTunes and leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference. We really appreciate it. You can, of course, also make a donation anytime you'd like by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons or have made donations. It means a lot. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much, as always, to Brian Park for the wonderful outlines he's done for some of the shows. You can find them on the show notes. Original music for ACRAC composed by Dr. Dennis Quo. Check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Robert Sawyer, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.